This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Last nine on this fine Sunday morning, and you're listening to Three Triple R. The name of this program is Radio Marinara. We are a program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. I'm John Ford. I'm Dr. Beach. How are you, gentlemen? I'm very, I'm very well. Doing very well. Excellent. Indeed. Pleased Indeed. to hear. Looking for a big show. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Tim. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Andrew. He's not here, but thank you, Andrew Minga. Oh, thank you, <laughs> He's, he's materialised for soulful bits once again. Um, and thank you, Kent, up front for um, weaving his panelling magic for us today. We have got a big show today. Um, we've got all sorts of news, John and yep. Dr Beach. Lots of news from all around the world. Yeah. Not I've got a little, little bit about right whales, North Atlantic right whales. Yeah, I, I looked at my news, though, and I don't have that much positive today. But anyway, I'll try to, I'll try to get some positive out of it. Okay. Mm. Sounds good. And I've got a little bit, and um, I'm looking forward very much to being joined in the studio, well, we all are, by um, Margaret Wertheim, and she'll be coming on in about 20, 25 minutes. Um, many of you might have heard of Margaret and the Coral Reef Project, and it's a great, well, I feel great privilege to have Margaret in the studio today to talk about the Coral Reef Project, but also the very, well, the varied and the many ways in which she communicates science. She's... Um, in fact, she's been just awarded the Science Medal from the University of New South Wales, the first woman to be awarded that medal for science communication. So, as I said, great pleasure to have Margaret in the studio, and that'll be in about 20, 25 minutes. Fantastic. And when we're talking about a coral reef project, where it might not be what our listeners are thinking it is. Mm. Uh, that's right. Unless you've been listening to Radio Marinara for a very long time. Um, but we'll talk about that when Margaret comes in. That's right. It's a coral reef project with a difference. Yeah, yeah. sure it is. A bit land-based as well. Anyway, I just don't want to add in too much. Maybe, maybe mm. not. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Well, anyway, let's just leave it alone. Um, and we're going to be catching up with Terry on the phone shortly before Margaret comes in as well um, to talk about some diving that she's been doing recently. Uh, we were planning on catching up with Terry last week, but we got a bit carried away speaking with Kate Mills about the um, the great uh, Victorian fish count, which actually officially kicked off yesterday. And uh, so we'll be talking with Terry about um, diving around Christmas Island, but also some of the incredible um, natural phenomena that occur on Christmas Island. A great crab migration. I don't know if you've come across that, mm-hmm. seen footage of that in your travels. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, they have like a, um, uh, a crab bridge. It's the yes. only bridge dedicated just to crabs. Indeed. So they can cross the highway. Well, as much as Christmas Island would have a highway. That's right. But yes. So is Terry calling in from there? Is that where she is now? No, she's back. She's back in Melbourne, but I think she, she'll be diving today somewhere. Conditions look pretty spectacular. Uh, and giving us a diving report as well. Okay. And I think that's our show. 
Yeah. Well, it's not over yet. No. <laughs> no. That's, that's what it sounded like. Let, let, let's, let's play the wrap-up tune. <laughs> there's, there's no one out there. We might have to pretend we're medical doctors or something. John, you've got some weather. I've got some weather. weather. It was wet um, yesterday. It sure was. Um, it doesn't tell us how much we got. 24.8 millimetres. 24.8 millimetres. Since nine oh, o'clock yesterday go. morning. There you go. Right. That's, that I, haven't, I don't remember us getting that much in Melbourne for a long time. It was uh, spectacular. I yeah. felt like I was in the tropics. Yeah, I timed it just getting home from the shops. Yeah. Just too late. Like, just <laughs> that tiny bit too late. And I sat in the car and I got out the radar on my phone and I went, ah, oh, there's no getting out of this. I'm just going to have to take a deep breath. Oh, the, and I've got to get say, wet. the world did give us a lot of warning. I mean, the wind that was blowing oh, yeah. before it, just to that change in, in air pressure, it was, yeah, it was, it was quite something. The and, darkening of the skies. And yeah. the radar was spectacular and quite unusual. You could see it all coming down from the east, from the northeast, this yeah. band. It was that last five minutes of deciding whether or not to buy mangoes. <laughs> and I sat in the car. Having decided to buy mangoes, <laughs> seriously regretted that decision. Anyway, back to the weather. When you're eating that mango, you will not regret it. Yeah, um, today is going to be lovely. It's going to be a top of 28 degrees uh, with a chance of a shower, I think, mostly in the east or a thunderstorm, mostly in the east. That means probably up in the Dandong Ranges, my part of the world. Tomorrow, uh, well, actually, the good weather is going to last pretty much all week. Tomorrow is going to be 29 and sunny. Tuesday, 20, uh, 30 and sunny. Wednesday, 30 again, possibly with a late shower. A little bit of rain towards the end of the week, uh, but it's still going to be 25 on Thursday and 24 on Friday. So, uh, look, yeah, wow, great. That's the weather. The 25, we haven't had a lot of those mid-20s at all this this spring, it's been feel like it's been nineteen or thirty, yeah, and not much in the middle. But anyway, oh, we right um, on the water today. Exposed beaches are producing fun waves under a light northeast breeze. That I don't know. Anyway, we will need Doctor Surfin to tell us what he thinks of fun waves. I don't think it'd be positive. Um, and water temperature is currently sixteen degrees. Uh, the tide times at the moment we had a. Uh, at Point Lonsdale, we have a low at 7.07 or has been at low 7.07 and a high at 1.16 and another low at 7.17 in the evening. Good one. Nice. 7.17. That just makes me think of the band Heaven 17. <laughs> i got that tune in my head. <laughs> Don't think You've been up late, haven't you, Dr. Beach? I have not. <laughs> Shall we play? Shall, actually, let's do some news. Yeah, look, I want to tell you a little bit about um, Octlantis, which was sort of this uh, an octopus metropolis that never really was. And this is sort right. of an interesting. Um, this is going to lead into sort of some of our conversations with Margaret Radholm around science communication, um, where science can get picked up, and which is an interesting story and often a, an interesting observation and more sort of you know a natural history aspect can be taken by social media um, and I guess. What's the word? Sort of, you know, with anthropomorphized, taking a whole lot of human elements on board and building to be something that it's it's not quite. Mm. Because um, I think earlier this year, a group of researchers, um, some based at University of Wollongong and others from around the world, um, so octopus experts, um, they were in Jervis Bay. Um, they're in sort of they're in southern New South Wales, and they found this this sort of I guess 
I wouldn't call it a metropolis. There was only 15 or 16 octopus. But for octopus, which are generally solitary, this mm. is quite interesting. So 15 or so octopuses, octo- octopuses, not octopi, in a small, although we can debate that too, um, in a small area which is covered in shells. And so there was lots of skull shells and they all had their little caves in there and they are all sort of interacting and it was you know pretty amazing to, um, to actually see this. And this was sort of uh, reported. Um, but then soon articles came out saying that the octopuses were um, creating works of art Art, that they were building fences to keep other octopus out, and all these sort of these sort of ideas of them building, you know, skyscrapers and this sort of thing un- to make things into an underwater city. And is, is are, that, are, are there images of this that we can look at online? Well, no, because those things didn't actually happen. Uh, so that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So basically it was, it was an area with a whole lot of shells and they used to bring back shells and that was a really interesting thing. They would bring back their food to eat in their den. Which and is so not it, unknown for octopuses. Exactly, but they were just, it just got to a point where they were, they were all doing it and because there were shells there that created homes for them so they could dig and create a cave in, within the shell piles and so then another one would come in and then it would bring its shells and so it was sort of this, you know, and so it was growing and they actually observed it, the um, population increase over time like a city. Right. So, you know, that was sort of, you know, that's the analogy when you put it out there for science communication, you know, we need to get it connecting for, you know, what we experience as humans. So it was like Octopus City, but then it gets taken, yeah. particularly by the internet, into these spaces of, of Octopus Mate, you know, painting Mona Lisas and things like that. <laughs> anyway, that's pretty interesting. So it's been, it's been dubbed Octopolis. Yeah, yeah, Octopolis. Yes. Octopolis, yes. Oh, no, Octlantis. 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 Yes. Okay. There you go. There'd be a great documentary in that. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> okay, filmmakers. <laughs> oh, where, where was this again, Josh? Uh, Jervis Bay. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was local. Well, localish. Yeah. yeah. Was, There's some so, great underwater yeah. filmmakers out there. I'm sure you could go. It, it does conjure up fantastic images, doesn't it? Yeah. All, octopuses. all the same species. Uh, yeah, they're all gloomy octopus, which is a very common uh, in, in the east sort of G- south. Gloomy octopuses. Gloomy octopuses. Well, that's why they were getting together. Because you know, they're so happy. We, we know that living in a community cheers us all up. That's right. There you go. They yes. are the, the not-so-gloomy octopuses of Jarvis can, Bay. That's right. I can, it, it'll be a bit more uh, Finding Nemo now, I think. It'll be more of a Pixar thing. Yeah, with the good... <laughs> Have a great soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, it would. Obviously, yeah. Octopus's Garden. <laughs> yeah. We built this city. <laughs> <That's> a- <laughs> yeah. Ringo Starr would love it. <laughs> awesome. Last week, we cut Terry Allen short with um, three minutes to talk before the end of the show. This week, we're giving her 45. Good morning, Terry. <laughs> Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Dr. Beach and John. <laughs> Actually, it's it's not quite 45 because we've got a guest coming in at 9.30, but <laughs> we've got you, given you plenty of time to... Um, should, we st- should we kick off with the dive report? Yeah, sure. So um, despite the uh, huge amount of rain we had yesterday, um, it's uh, been really nice local conditions. I headed down to a local spot for us at South Road Brighton and uh, great visibility, about 8 to 10 metres and uh, some dusky moorong, a few little skates and uh, lots of hula fish and a few juvenile whiting, which I hadn't seen there before. So... Yeah, nice local one and a few people diving under Portsy, uh, which usually is pretty surgy, but beautiful cuttlefish out there. Um, and you're speaking about your octopus, octopologist or whatever it was before. <laughs> um, and there's some beautiful uh, sand octopus and, of course, the beautiful giant Maori octopus out at uh, Rye um, at Elsa's Reef, the artificial reef out there. So, yeah, plenty happening. And, um, yeah, ignore the weather. It's been actually quite calm, um, judging by your surf report as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's pretty good. 
So good day for diving today. Where are you going out today? No, not going out today. Actually going sailing. All right. On top of the water. And, uh, yeah, my uh, partner Jeff and I are going out with a friend. We're going to cruise across to uh, Williamstown. In fact, well, there's not much wind, so it might be the iron sail on. But, uh, yeah, just going to be on top of the water today. Great. If, be nice. if people were diving today, where would your pick be? with the current conditions. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think we still only have a light north... Oh, what was the forecast? Light north please? Yeah, north and north-east, uh, 15 to 25 k's. So okay, not many knots. Okay, 15 to 25 k's. Yeah, so that's all right. Um, I wish... Yeah. So, yeah, north-north-east. Well, you could go also go to the back beaches. Um, but, yeah, even Blegarry is always good because it's got, you know, good protection there. And uh, I think anywhere this morning will be absolutely fine. Yeah, Flinders uh, will be pretty Flinders good today. Been a bit yeah, Flinders might be OK. You've got to be... Yeah, easterly is good. You've just got to be careful of... If it's a normal... Yeah, nor'east, you've got to be a little bit wary because it can blow in there. Um, but, um, yeah, if you're going to go, I guess go. Go early is always... The, case with diving. Yeah, good yeah. one. Now, we mentioned last week we were going to talk to you about um, Christmas Island because you've just been diving there. Um, so let's let's do what we didn't do last week and talk about Christmas Island. What Have you dived there before? No, no, I've never been there before. And um, it's it's interesting, the, the people, the group we dived with, uh, they are actually a, a sort of a worldwide uh, company. They're actually German-based. And they've uh, set up shop there about a year ago. And they told us at the end of our trip, we were the first Australian group to dive with them there at Christmas Island, um, which was amazing. You know, they have Germans and Belgian and French and all sorts of people. Um, and there is another small company there. And, you know, I'm not saying we're not the first Australians to dive there. There's been, you know, smaller groups. But it was just interesting. It's It's a long way. Uh, relatively to get there from Melbourne, but um, so Terry, uh, can yeah, you certainly worth it? Terry, can you explain exactly where Christmas Island is for those that think oh, I think that's a part of Australia, but where is it? Is it in the Indian Ocean somewhere? Yeah, can you just explain exactly yeah. where it is? Yeah, so it's um, it's it. The best way to start really is to say it's just two hours flight south of Jakarta. So uh, it's it's in the Indian Ocean, as you say. It's uh, it's a long way north, and it's um, a, a you know long way out from the West Australian coast. It's part of Western Australia, and um, so just by flying, you fly to Perth, and then you fly to Christmas, Christmas Island. Cocos Keeling Island is the other island. It's about four four and a half hours flight from Perth. So it takes like, you know, we, we stayed overnight Perth and then we flew in the next day. So it's kind of, you feel like you're halfway to Europe by the yeah. time you get there. <laughs> um, but that kind of adds, of course, to its beauty um, that you are somewhere so, you know, isolated, so close to Asia. Uh, the population there, a lot of the people were, were or still are phosphate miners. Unfortunately, that's still going on a little bit. Um, and so there's lots of people there, Chinese, Malay, um, there's quite a large Muslim community from Indonesia, uh, and definitely sort of the Anglo-Australians are definitely in the minority, uh, which makes for a very interesting place, a very interesting community from the human side of things. Mm. 
Can we talk about the uh, non-human side of things? And I mentioned um, before, <laughs> so crabs in particular. So Christmas Island uh, crabs have, there have been all sorts of documentaries made about them and, and what, it, I mean, it really, they are a phenomenon in their own right. Can you talk us through the Christmas Island crabs and what makes them so unique and special? Yeah, well, they, um, as you say, yeah, there have been some great documentaries, a fantastic photo of uh, David Attenborough sitting on the beach and just the crabs just crawling all over him. And I think it was his decision to do that. He said later it was just the creepiest things, these things crawling up his inner trouser leg, <laughs> a little bit disconcerting. Um, but I think by himself and I think others have described it as one of the great animal migrations of the world. You know, um, I've, I've, you know, I've loved to see, you know, the wildebeest of Africa, etc. But to see these crabs was incredible. We, the the week we were there, which was two weeks ago, it was still quite dry, and then right at the end we got a big rain rainfall, start of the wet season, and that's when the crabs then start moving. They come down from the forest, they move through the forest, across the roads, down to the beach. They dip themselves briefly in the water because they are completely terrestrial um, crabs. Um, they then go into burrows, they mate, and then I think it's about a week or two later, the females come down with their eggs. They then once again dip themselves in the water, so they hang on the edge of these cliffs. They dip themselves in, they release the eggs, and if they fall in the water, they can actually drown. They're, you know, they're, as I said, they're completely terrestrial um, and then the little baby crabs hatch and then they come out and crawl over apparently everything, uh, which will be happening sort of probably mid-December uh, towards the end of the year. Um, and, of course, they just crawl through people's houses and, and, and everything. So we got to see the start of it. We got to see the mainly the males first and then following with the females. Um, they crawling through the forest, over the roads. And as uh, John said, there's a especially... Um, built crab bridge which is really high about three meters and trucks and that can go under it very steep and the crabs are starting to crawl over that and there's amazing um sound of this sort of of the crab claws going over this metal bridge and what they've done is along the roads they've got um these little sort of uh, barriers which are about uh you know 20 centimeters high and they've got metal ones and nylon ones and the crabs are sort of um, pushed along those and walk along those and then they go over the bridge and as well as the bridge now they've built um, I think it's about 10 or 12 underpasses which remind me a little bit I think like the pygmy possum um, uh, possums uh, mountain possums you know they've set up and yeah, Mount Buller or at Falls or whatever, um, and they've built these, and so they're like they look like a cattle grid on the road, and then the crabs can go underneath um, about half a metre deep, and they can push their way through there to get around to the other side. Um, yeah, so we started to see them on the roads, along the tunnels, over the bridges, and um, but there's about 14 different types of crabs um, on Christmas Island, and blue and purple. I guess the most spectacular are the robber crabs, which some of your listeners may have seen photos of before. They're also called coconut crabs, and they grow up to four kilos. They're the wow. biggest crustacean in the world. Um, and so you're kind of you're crawling in. We went through a few dry caves in our walks, and you suddenly look up, and there's this robber crab right in your face, like looks like a giant sort of tarantula um but beautiful colors blues and reds and purples and oranges and yeah 
uh, they are all now completely protected. People used to be able to, the locals were able to take them um, to eat, but now um, everything's protected, luckily. So, yeah, that was uh, a really amazing thing to see. I highly recommend going Ter- there. Terry, I'm going to demonstrate yeah. my um, somewhat naive understanding of certain aspects of zoology here. And yeah. with these crabs that are terrestrial, they, so crabs, crustaceans in general, have gills to, to breathe under yeah. the water. Do these have very, very strongly supported gills so that they don't kind of flap against one another so that they can breathe in air? Or do, have they developed lungs? Yeah, I, no, they, they've got gills. Um, I, I briefly flipped through a very good book on uh, all the crabs of Christmas Island. Um, they so they mainly stay right down in their burrows and it's pretty humid there. The, the temperature is about 25, 26 most of the year. And so they stay down in their burrows, they eat the leaves and I think they... they sort of make nests of leaves to try to keep the humidity. And, of course, they won't start doing their walk, their march, until the rains come and until, you know, the humidity went up to 80 or 90%. So my understanding is they still have the gills, but they can't... Um, many of them, like, if they start the march and then it dries up, obviously a lot of them will die. They also have a very... Because of my sort of diabetes research background, they have a very interesting hormone that's released um that it's kind of like an insulin but it's actually called crustacean um releasing factor or something and they can get like a surge of uh, quick glucose to allow them to kind of do this march because they walk i think it was something like one to four kilometers a day wow it's a long way (laughs) for a little crab yeah, so yeah, that's my understanding about the gills. There are other crabs there, terrestrial. There are the blue crabs, and they will live but uh, in freshwater. And there's beautiful freshwater springs on Christmas Island. The whole island is volcanic and limestone, so it's just full of you know artesian water. And these beautiful springs come up, lovely waterfalls, and the blue crabs all live around those springs, and that's how obviously they keep their gills. Uh, you know, moist and, yeah, mm. so very, very interesting. Interesting biology for sure, yeah. Thanks. That's cleared up. Lots of questions I always had about that. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple of minutes left here. I'm just wondering about um, yeah. the diving. And next time you come in studio, we can maybe talk more about it. But um, how was the – what kind of diving did you do while you were there? Yeah, so most of the diving is um, the best diving sort of big walls, um, which are beautiful, lots of fans and, and nice corals, um, amazing caves. So there's sea caves that used to be freshwater caves. So, you know, stalactites, stalagmites, the works. So you can imagine we're pretty excited about that because, you know, a bunch of us are cave divers as well. Um, I guess we, we saw one, uh, two whale shark, and the whale sharks do come in and they feed on, especially when the the baby crabs are hatching, mm. um, so in a month's time. Um, I guess one thing that was a little bit disappointing was we were hoping to see more big stuff, good, nice pelagics, tuna, you know, lots of sharks. Mm. And we saw a few sharks. We saw a couple of tuna, but really the big big animals were just not there. And that was one aspect that was a bit, bit disappointing, I have to say. So... You know, like we're seeing, obviously, around a lot of places around the world, um, around the Pacific, you know, the poor old sharkies are just, uh, can be a bit hard to find now, so... Do you think that's yeah, a... The diving was still very good. Good reef shark, good reef fish. Um, coral had been a bit broken up. They'd had a couple of bad cyclones go through there um, and a bit of coral bleaching. Um, but it looked like it was sort of recovering, so... Yeah, the, um, it, looked, it looked okay as far as the reef goes. 
Yeah, and um, I guess compared to how things are travelling on the Great Barrier Reef in um, in better condition. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, look, it depended on where we went, you know, because it's a very rugged island, as you can imagine, you know, the weather it would get. And one side was probably a little bit um, more blown out and a bit maybe the water's a bit warmer. Um, on the other side, they tended to... We, we found areas that the coral was very, very healthy. So I know it must be a fairly recent phenomenon because, as I said, there was still, you know, really good schools of fusiliers and, and lots of coral cod and lots of butterfly fish. And, and it was great. We, we, we saw two... We saw a species of butterfly fish we'd never seen before. Um, there's a, a angel... A Cocos Island angel fish, obviously, is only found there. Um, so that, you know, it's always very exciting to see a couple of new species. Fantastic. Um, Terry, we're going to let you go and get ready for your um, big sail or putt-putt or <laughs> however it works out across <laughs> the bay. Sale. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. Um, we'll, okay. have, we'll have you back in studio in a few weeks' time. Yeah. That'll be good. Show, yeah. yeah, looking Great. forward to it. We've got all sorts of plans for that one. All right, awesome. Thanks all again. Right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye for now. Terry Allen there, our dive reporter. Can you hear the crab scuttling? <laughs> Walking all that way, sideways, presumably. Yeah. I, don't know, yeah, I don't know how I'd it. go with that. I'd, I'd, I would be both fascinated and unnerved, I think, all at the same time. Oh, I love it. Yeah. We have a guest in the studio, and I'm just going to read out a little bit of a bio I've got here from the University of New South Wales website, which has just awarded um, Margaret a prize. Born in... Um, well, it actually says born in Brisbane here, but we've found out that that's wrong. Born in this fair city of Melbourne, raised in Brisbane, resident in LA, Margaret Wertheim studied physics and maths at university and her work as a writer and artist focuses on the relations between science and the wider cultural landscape. She's the author of six books, including Pythagoras' Trousers, A History of Physics, Religion and Gender, and The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace, A History of Scientific Concepts of Space. And she has designed art and science exhibits for galleries and museums around the world. Her coral reef project, created with her twin sister Christine, is the largest science and art endeavour in the world. It's been exhibited widely, including at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh and the Hayward Gallery in London. And more than 10,000 people have participated in the project, which uses a crochet crochet technique invented by a mathematician and based on hyperbolic geometry to create or to recreate the beautifully coloured creatures of coral reefs and highlights the threats they face from climate change. Margaret is an extraordinary science communicator with a strong commitment to engaging more women in science, says the University of New South Wales Dean of Science, Professor Emma Johnson. Indeed, Margaret, it is a great pleasure to have you here in the studio and I feel somewhat humbled to have you here. (laughs) Just having received the University of New South Wales Scientia Medal for Science Communication, we here on Radio Marinara try and communicate science, but I think we have a lot to learn from you, so welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> it's so fantastic to have you here. We were just talking while we were listening to that track about how this project in particular, it, it, there are some analogies here, I think, in, with coral reefs themselves in terms of, of how they grow. And, and it'd be great to, I think, go back to where this all began. Um, where, where did this idea come from? Well, the idea of crocheting a coral reef comes from um, two places. One is that my sister... Christine and I wanted to do a project that would draw attention to the plight of the Great Barrier Reef and the fact that it was dying out. And in 2005, when we began the project in our LA living room, um, that was the year that scientists were really beginning to publicly say, look, you know, all these coral bleaching events are due to global warming. So global warming's not in the future, it's here and now, guys. But then you say, well, why, do you, why crochet? Like, why not paint one? 
Well, it turns out there's actually a very scientifically necessary reason why crochet is the, is the medium to use. And that's because you can crochet the forms of corals very easily. And corals and kelps and all the frilly crenellated reef things, they're biological manifestations of a kind of geometry called hyperbolic geometry. And mathematicians discovered this, this kind of geometry in the 19th century after 2,000 years of trying to prove it was impossible. Mm. But then once they proved it was mathematically possible, they didn't have a model of it until this Latvian mathematician came along and said in 1997, I can crochet it, guys. So the project comes out of this dual thing of saying we want to do something, an artistic thing to draw attention to climate change, but also it's got its foundations in, in the foundations of modern mathematics. And you can crochet, it's like the frilly edges, the crenulated, you said, like a lettuce leaf, for example, is, is an example of the kind of crochet that you are doing for the coral reefs or different types of corals, fan corals and all sorts of different ones. Yes, I mean, if it, it, one simple way of looking at the difference between what is hyperbolic geometry, if you look at a flat piece of paper and then you compare it to a lettuce leaf, so the lettuce leaf starts off quite flat where it joins the stem and then as you go out it gets more and more frilly and curly so it's getting hype it gets more and more hyperbolic so when you see all the frilly curly forms of coral reefs they are actually doing this alternative kind of geometry and one of the things that i like about this is that it raises a very interesting question you know what does it mean to know and to do mathematics so, you know, I'd like to claim that the corals are actually knowing math because they're doing it in the bodies of their being. Mm. <laughs> My mind is spinning. <laughs> and I, I don't crochet at all. But is it... So transfer, taking this Euclidean mathematics... Well, not Euclidean mathematics. but Non-Euclidean. The, the, it's non-Euclidean, so the hyperbolic mathematics and transferring that to being able to crochet something which is crenulated like that. Is that a difficult thing for someone who does crochet? Or no, is no, it, is it's, it a, it's incredibly simple. Because all you have to do is increase stitches. Hmm. So you just say, like, crochet three stitches, increase one, crochet mm-hmm. three stitches, increase one. And if you keep on doing that, as you go backwards and forwards increasing, it begins to ruffle. So one <laughs> of the great lovely things about this is that, in fact, women who've been making ruffles have been doing non-Euclidean geometry yes. forever. They just didn't know that they were doing formal mathematics. And it's it's fantastic how um, I, I have a, a 10 and a 12-year-old who are both studying music and we've talked about the um, how, how math mathematics is right throughout music as well. And I guess it, it's true for so many of the arts. It's it, it, Arts are not arts. Arts are a combination of arts and there's this sort of interface between um, create creativity uh, but then that kind of structured rule um, structure what am I trying to say rules and structure that, that come from maths yes well mu- music's a really good example and, and what music and handicrafts have in common is that they're what's called iterated structures mm. so you know with crochet or knitting you're often repeating blocks of patterns so really all of those handicrafts they're codes they're like computer code and you know when you see them written down they are in fact literally a form of code and music's a form of code too or the representation of music is a form of code so music is iterative in time and so music and handicrafts both have in common very much all the qualities that we talk about in terms of computer code and, and uh, music also with its rhythmic patterns, you know, that's 
I mean, one way of understanding math is that math is the language of pattern and form. And so music has always been perceived by mathematicians as sort of temporal kind of mathematics. That's right. In the many people, I think 10,000 is a figure that has been quoted, people that have been involved in the Crochet Coral Reef Project with you, mostly women, have they developed, have they appreciated or did they... I want to say greater mathematical understanding, but that's already there as we demonstrate in being able to do the crochet. But has it sort of... Like a realisation. A realisation that, yes, this is I'm being a mathematician by doing this. Absolutely. So when, when uh, my sister and I give workshops to introduce the project to community, so w- when we work with communities for them to make a crochet reef of their own, as we've discussed here, there was a great one done here in Melbourne by the Burringer Cultural Centre... Um, So when we begin, we start with doing workshops and the workshop will begin with talking about geometry. So what is hyperbolic geometry? What's the difference between hyperbolic geometry and and Euclidean geometry? And we go through all of that and then we talk about the fact that the discovery of hyperbolic geometry ushered in a revolution in mathematics which ultimately led to the mathematics that underlies general relativity and will tell us about the structure of the universe. And then we go into crochet and while we're doing the crochet we have discussions about the curvature of space-time and how would you understand, like scientists who understand now, what is the curvature of our space-time? And over and over again what we hear from the women is how profoundly important it is to them that while they're doing a handicraft that they feel is feminine, connected to their mothers and you know, feminine culture, that they're also being taken seriously as intellective beings who can understand the essential insights of general relativity. And these are beautiful structures that, that I have a book in front of me called Crochet Coral Reef, which I believe is coming to an end of a print run, but you will be reprinting it, I'm sure, Margaret. I hope so, yes. Um, and some of the images in there are just, are just astounding of these fantastic exhibits at various different galleries around the world um, of what these people have done. But out of wool, and also I noticed that some of the other materials you're using now are plastics. Yes, we have a whole part of the project... Uh, where we crochet coral reefs out of plastics and that's meant to be a response to the fact that, you know, the other great problem facing the ocean is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and these hideous guys of plastic that are swirling around. And we began that project as soon as we heard um, about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and we thought, oh, you know, isn't it ridiculous that while the real reefs are being disappeared, this other sort of hideous satanic sibling is growing in the ocean. <laughs> Indeed. And we, we thought we should do a crochet response to that. And you have also, I've said just flicking through the book, there are, there are white reefs that you've crocheted as well, that you've exhibited, which are, of course, a reference to the coral bleaching. Yes, we have two white reefs that are very... I mean, they're meant to be elegaic homages to the, to the coral bleaching. They're actually very beautiful and audience favourites. But, I mean, the project is... We're trying to represent as much as we can, you know, through an artwork, but the actuality of what's going on in these reefs. Mm. Could you um, talk us through some of the groups that you've worked with? Because this is global, this this, um, amazing phenomenon. Can you talk us through some of the groups that you've worked with, just Mm. to give us a bit of an insight of, of the actual people who you've worked with? Sure. We've, um, we work with communities all over the world to do their own, their own reefs and there have been now over 40 of what we call satellite reefs made, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Sunshine Coast, um, 
Adelaide here in Australia. There's been maybe 10 of them done in different states of the USA, one in Germany, one in Latvia, one in Ireland, one in the United Arab Emirates. I'll, I'll tell you a lovely story that represents, I think, the power of the project. We did it some years ago um, off the coast of Germany on an island called Fur. They have a very beautiful museum there. And 700 women all over Germany and Denmark got involved in sending pieces of... They crocheted the corals and they sent them in and we, they built this just absolutely enormous, incredibly beautiful reef. But one of the things that happened that was very beautiful... So this island has a sort of bifurcated culture. It's traditionally a fishing island. So traditionally it was farmers and fishermen living really quite hard scrabble lives. But it's off the coast of Germany, it's beautiful. And so in recent years, rich Germans have started to purchase holiday houses there. And they only come for the holidays. So there's this huge dichotomous culture. Mm. On the one hand, the traditional relatively poor fisherwomen and farmers. On the other hand, the rich tourists. And these cultures are really don't have much in common. And there's quite antagonism between them. But when they we did the Crochet Coral Reef project... People of all classes and all and all types were invited to come. And in Germany's very um, formal culture, people can know each other for 20 years before they invite each other to use their Christian names to one another. Mm. They call each other, you know, Mrs. You know, Werner or whatever. Yep. Within a week of them doing this Crochet Coral Reef project, women from both sides of the socioeconomic spectrum were calling each other by their first names. Wow. <laughs> So, so, as, as they say in Germany, that the, they were now dutzing one another. They were using the first person. And, well, the, yeah, the informal sense. It was, yeah. I oh, is that the word? The yeah, yeah instead of Z, calling about. someone Z, it's it, 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 amazing, fantastic. Well, and What I thought was amazing is that it's, it just shows you that it's like the little corals. You know, the corals themselves are individuals who are working together mm. to produce something bigger than any one of them and they don't distinguish hierarchically and this really sort of it puts everybody on a level playing field. That's right at at those different levels both at um, as you say an individual level but then at a local level with the various groups but then at a global level as well it effectively has created almost like a um, an analogy of the Great Barrier Reef itself or coral reefs around the world. Um, John's just looked this up for me. The Melbourne Reef Exhibition at Beringia was um, late 2010 through to early 2011. So oh, it was okay, about, so. about seven years ago. And, uh, and I went to that. And it, for mm. me at the time, it was just this groundbreaking... I couldn't believe it. I walked into this space and saw all of these corals that had been created with um, photos next to them, some of the inspiration that had been used um, by the artists to put these pieces together. Have you found that um, the groups that you're working with, have they got a particular interest in what's in their local area or uh, in terms of what inspires them to create their pieces? Yes, it, it, that, that can happen. So some people want to do um, very specific species. They say, you know, they see a picture of something and they really want to do that. And some people just want to go just let their imaginations loose and we say well you know it's completely all things are good and all all is uh, right some communities have very much wanted to do something that's representation of their local community the the probably the most intense example of that was when we did it in abu dhabi um, in 2014 and in emirati culture they 
uh, have traditional fishing baskets of these very beautiful shapes. They actually look a bit like the shapes of mosques. And so they built the understructure of their reef out of these traditional Emirati fishing baskets and they had one for each of the emirates and they covered them in their corals. So it wasn't that their corals themselves were emulating local species, it's that they were using the local fishing technology that was thousands of years old to create the, mm. as it were, topology, topography of their reef. And that was a very, very nice very nice thing. And indeed, you be, the crochet is not only of, well, your goodness example there, of something that's not just a coral, but also anemones and other animals that live on the reef, people are crocheting to put in these exhibits. Is that correct? Yes. So a lot of the, I mean, we encourage people to make it look like as much like a reef as, and of course, it's a fantasy, but, you know, it starts off with his doing the hyperbolic crochet, which creates the frills. But clearly, there are lots of things like anemones or tube worms in reefs that, or, or sea fans that aren't necessarily hyperbolic. And some people have gone to very elaborate lengths to work out ways to craft, you know, other structures. Because you know, in the end, we wanted to, to emulate a reef, um, but we also wanted to be a fantasy. It is. As my sister likes to say, it's not a documentary. It's an an artwork. It's kind of both, though, isn't it? It's both, yes. It's an artwork, it's a documentary, it's um, it's a, a calling out, really, for people to really appreciate the beauty of the reef but and to connect with an audience that might not connect with um, a documentary they might see on TV, but they'll come along and look at this and go, oh, wow, okay, I start to understand what this is all about now. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are, are there any um, groups that you're aware of at the moment in, uh, in either Melbourne or um, uh, sort of uh, elsewhere in Australia working on this at the moment, Margaret? Uh, There aren't any other groups specifically at the moment. We're in discussion with a number of groups about it. So um, we have uh, basically a formal procedure that that we set up with communities because it's a very big endeavour to do this. Mm. It it takes a lot of resources on the part of the people and it's a big commitment for us as well. So we... um, But we we get... We get... um, people all over the world making inquiries about it just recently we've had one from puerto rico we've had one from indiana we've had one from uh you know we 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 often get calls from people all over australia there's there's something that connects in with that um the handicraft community drawing into that connection with the marine environment and we um recently covered um a story about i don't know if you're aware of the penguins in phillip island i am i'm trying to get to see a penguin while i'm here (laughs) (laughs) so um something that happened with a big oil spill back in 2011 and so some of the um the locals down at phillip island started knitting little vests to go on the penguins after they'd had all of the oil washed off while their feathers regrew and so they put a call out for some for some help and before they knew it these vests started arriving from all over the world in giant shipping containers and they had more (laughs) vests than they knew what to do with so it's it's quite fascinating there's this thing about handicrafts and Mm. perhaps particularly working with wool there's a parallel here as well but drawing that connection into the marine environment well it, it is true that i think australia is a country which has a fantastic relationship to craft. The only other place in the world that we've worked and seen this kind of deep connection to craft is in the in the um, Scandinavian world, where it's really cold. So you know, there's a lot of knitting going on there. But Australian women are really great crafters, and I I, I can like I grew up crafting. I grew up 
knitting and sewing I learned from my mum. My mum taught me. Mm. I can't remember a time when I didn't do handicrafts. And that tradition really seems to have stayed alive in Australia. And I don't know if it's just that we have, you know, a lot of wool here, but Australian women are phenomenal crafters. And there's some wonderful other projects going on in Australia, like you've probably heard of the 50,000 Poppies Project, where they're knitting and crocheting 50,000, I think it's 70,000 poppies altogether that will be displayed on the National Mall for Anzac Day next year. And those people who started that, they were directly inspired by the Reef Project. They were part of the Melbourne Reef when it was done at the Barringer Cultural Centre and they wanted to do something more and they realised there was this you know, enormous community who wanted to continue this. And what I think is wonderful about this is that it is actually taking the ethos of the Crochet Coral Reef, which is which is about community and is about raising awareness of a very important issue and saying, how can we extend that in other ways? And I had a meeting with some people last weekend who want to... Um, they're working with saving the, the forests up in... Nor- the ash forests in northern Victoria. And they were talking to me about... They want to do a project of crocheting a forest or knitting a forest... And so I, I love this idea yeah. that Australia's, you know, we're going to have crochet poppy fields and crochet coral reefs and crochet forests. And perhaps we'll, you know, as we destroy the environment in reality, we'll just have a knitted one in yes. its place. <laughs> well, Jenny Baker's done some amazing work. I'm sure you're familiar with, you might be familiar with her work. I shouldn't say I'm sure. No. Jenny Baker, an artist, so she's she's done children's books but worked with different craft media in order to sort of to bring that to life as well. We need to wrap up, Dr Beach. Well, we do, but I just want one really quick question, Margaret. Um, so one of the drivers for this for you is to raise awareness of what is happening to the to the reef, well, to coral reefs around the world with climate change and also you mentioned before with the, the plastics that we have now in the ocean. Have you seen any... Any traction from that, from the, the projects that you're doing and the people that are engaged in this saying, wow, I, I, I really was not aware of the problem, the issue at that level? Well, what we hear from people is, I mean, we started the project 12 years ago, so the landscape has changed radically since then. I mean, when we started the project, a lot of people, at least in the US, were not aware the coral reefs were being wiped out um, and climate change was still very contentious. So we have seen i think the project has truly raised awareness among people who didn't know now everybody knows about it but what we do hear again and again from our participants is people say it's a very powerful project for them because it's not just grounded in oh everything's falling to shit yeah that the project is you're making something constructive in relation to the problem so we're not trying to pretend the problem isn't there but you're responding to it by doing something beautiful and constructive and that gives people a forum for talking about a troublesome, problematic, difficult issue while they're doing something pleasurable and creating something beautiful and I think that's actually the most powerful aspect of it. Margaret, thank you very much for joining us, for coming into 3RRR um, and talking about the Crochet Coral Reef and congratulations again on the award that you've received. Um, this is Radio Marinara it on is. 3 Triple R. Thanks so much, Margaret. It's been wonderful having you here. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.